Welcome to our mindfulness podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. We usually begin with bowing or gasho, then we prepare to sit, and we will sit for approximately 10 minutes. And then we will either stand and walk for another five minutes to kind of get blood into our legs again and and, uh, relax our muscles. And then we'll sit for another 10 approximately. And then we will chant, which is another form of meditation. Uh, We focus on the characters and we pronounce the sounds as a group. And it's a kind of a ritual of oneness. And then after that, we'll have a short Dharma talk of about five to 10 minutes. And then we'll close with Gasho. And this also includes offering incense. We offer incense, but you could also light the incense before the service starts. And this is kind of the program uh, of how our meditation services proceed. And so we will be getting underway today uh, with our program. Thank you very much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, It's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply. Let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world. Waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most, in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters, and each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character, and it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant the Junidai found on page 49. Junidai or 12 verses of reverence, originated in the Mahayana tradition of India during the time of the Pure Land Master Nagarjuna, around 150 CE. The verses were later translated into the Chinese text that we chant today. Like the larger Sutra and the Amida Sutra, the text of Junidai describes the spiritual qualities of Amida and the Pure Land using poetic language. Please read the translation of the Junidai found on page 51, which describes in detail what the 12 verses of reverence actually means. We will now chant the Junidai. Keshu Tenin Amida 
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts. Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu. Hello, my name is Teresa Shimogawa, and I am one of the new minister's assistants from Orange County Buddhist Church. And I'm going to give a talk today on non self. So recently I came across a quote that really resonated with me. It came from a podcast episode from Brene Brown's show, Dare to Lead. And it was a quote by Dr. Maya Shankar, who was interviewed about courage in the midst of change. Dr. Shankar said, the reason we often have so much discomfort in the face of change is because it threatens our identity and sense of self. I thought, wow, Shakyamuni Buddha was kind of a psychologist because the Buddhist idea of non-self is really an antidote to this very human inclination to obsess over our identity 
and the suffering that comes with that. So I thought I would talk about non-self and the way Buddhism can help us with our identity crises. In the 4th century, Bodhisattva Vasubandhu discussed the concept of non-self. In short, what we consider to be me or I is not a permanently existing entity. Rather, we are what happens when numerous processes occurring in our body and mind come together in reaction to sights, senses, smells, flavors, tactile sensations, and really everything in the world around us. The sense of self that we imagine actually doesn't have an independent reality. Our true self is a constantly flowing process of interacting with the world around us. Hence the Buddhist concept of anatta or non-self. Thich Nhat Hanh explains in his book, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, that believing something is permanent or has a self can cause suffering. He said that non-self means that you are made of elements which are not you. Peter Harvey wrote in his book, An Intro to Buddhism, that a person is a collection of rapidly changing, interacting mental and physical processes with character patterns reoccurring over some time. In Brene Brown's podcast, Dr. Maya Shankar talks about how she trained to be a violinist and an accident when she was 17 years old, basically it hurt her hand and it precluded her from continuing in her path. This was a major blow to her sense of identity, which had been intertwined with the idea that the violin was in her life. But these are the things that are going to happen in life. We can never maintain a fixed identity. I'm not sure where we learned that we should or why we have this inclination to want to put our identity in a nice, neat little box with a label on it. But it's so prevalent in the way that we operate in society. As a teacher, personally, I find it so difficult for me and my colleagues to convey to our students that not getting into this school or that school isn't going to be the end of the world for them. But to the student, it is devastating. It destroys their sense of self. And I think about how as a woman, we struggle with trying to conform to societal expectations about how we look and what is beauty and how as we age, every wrinkle, every gray hair and each extra pound can cause us to suffer as we battle the stigma of aging. We look for cures to stop it or slow it, and we're bombarded with images of celebrities who undergo plastic surgery to hide it. But if we really step back, we realize we're fighting a futile battle. You can't change the reality that we're all going to get older. We're all going to age, and one day we're all going to die with or without our wrinkles. And when you think about it, if we live long enough to age and have those wrinkles, then we're one of the lucky ones. A long time ago, I learned about the concept of the observing ego, and this is the ability to step outside of yourself to observe your actions and thoughts in a neutral way. And I feel like every single day I'm trying to remind myself to deploy this observing ego, to be more discerning about the thoughts that pop into my mind. In an ideal world, we could sift through the nonsense and decide immediately what was true and what was just our overactive imaginations firing again. But in reality, we are all what's called bamboo, ordinary humans, plagued with a sense of self that is not rooted in reality, and this causes us to suffer. The non-self is a way to let go of these attachments. Yet it feels like a delicate balancing act. 
Because on the one hand, if we love to play the violin, we want to invest in it. We want to play it all the time. We want it in our hands all the time. We want it to be the best at it. We want to be known for playing the violin. And it's very difficult to separate yourself from the violin in that scenario. What I thought was so interesting from the interview with Dr. Maya Shankar is that she gives very practical advice to deal with this. Because I think the Buddhist concept of non-self can be very difficult to apply in real life. So Dr. Shankar talked about how she took a deep dive to discover what she enjoyed about the violin. And she realized that she really liked the connection that it had with others. There was something very intimate about playing music and watching the emotion that came out of her audience in reaction to her music. She was able to take that insight and realize that maybe it wasn't something that she could exclusively feel by just playing the violin. Maybe there was something else she could do that would also elicit that connection with others that would similarly fulfill her. So she started to look for that something and she ended up studying behavior science and paired it with public policy, ultimately realizing that she got a similar fulfillment doing that work as she did playing the violin. And I like this story because I think the lesson here is that there is no one path for being our authentic selves. There is no one path to live a meaningful life. It's very easy for us to get tied to the idea that one experience or one relationship or one thing in our lives is what defines who we are. And this attachment causes us to suffer because experiences are fleeting. Relationships are not eternal and things come and go. Impermanence is going to rule the day. When we embrace these realities, we can begin to live in a way that accepts non-self and make choices accordingly. Instead of seeing a dead end, we might instead have the courage to forge a new path, seeking joy that we could have never conceptualized for ourselves. And that's the silver lining in life. Amidst the suffering, there is always more joy to discover. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. Copyright 2021. Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved.